Good morning. I'm going to take my mask off. I've had my shots. Um, the call to worship, I, I want us to read it together. And just to prepare you in case you don't know these verses, it's a very significant verse and part of the Bible, especially uh, right here after, after Easter. So we could read this all together. I don't have it. Let me uh, stand here so I can see what's going on. I'm not used to this. Can't see that. Okay. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you give us, Lord, as, as unworthy as we are. And we thank you for Jesus and all the physical suffering that he went through and everything that he did for us, Lord. Help us to appreciate that daily. Help us to understand that, Lord, and help us to hold that near and dear to our heart and keep it in our minds as we serve in fellowship with others every day. Guide and direct us in all that we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And now we're going to go to uh, the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and in your bulletins and, and on the screen, question 68, what is required in the Sixth Commandment? And we can read this together. The Sixth Commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. And now it's time for the children's sermon. If all the kids can come down front, I gotta run and get my props. My name's Mr. Jones. I'm an elder here at the church, and I get to share with you guys a little truth. And, and what we're going to talk about today is how do you know when something is true? How do you guys know if someone's telling you the truth? If I told you that I climbed Mount Everest, would you believe me? No. Yes? If I told you I brushed my teeth this morning, would you believe me? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's try something. I have with me in this bag something. And uh, if I told you I have eggs in this bag, would you believe me? Well, I ask the questions. <laughs> okay, come here. Come here. You, no, your brother, your brother. Come here. Okay, so you're going to be my volunteer, okay? Now, what do you, 
do you think, no, go ahead and sit down. Okay, here, come here, come here. So, so do you, what do you think's in the bag? Eggs. He says eggs. So now do you believe me that there's eggs in the bags or do you think he's maybe kidding? What's in the bag? Painted eggs. Okay. So sure enough, we have Easter eggs in the bag. All right, you can sit down. Sit down. Now here's a different thing. And you guys saw that. So you believe that there's eggs in the bags now, right? Okay, I need another volunteer. Come on. Now, I want you to feel in the bag. You're not going to be able to see, but I want you to reach in the bag and feel around and... Feel the other end, too. Do you guys think she's right? No, no. It's a doll. I have a little granddaughter, so I brought some of her stuff today. Okay, so now, in the Bible, how this relates to the Bible is that, you know, uh, Easter just happened, right? And what happened at Easter was Jesus died and rose again. And you guys know who the disciples are? Right? The group of guys that were really close with Jesus. Well, after Jesus died, the disciples got together in a room. He went in the tomb, but when they were in this room, and this was after he had died, all of a sudden, Jesus appeared in the room. And the disciples were, like, amazed. They saw him, and they're like, oh my goodness, Jesus lives. But guess what? One of the disciples, Thomas, he was... I don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't there that night. He was selling figs, or he was walking the donkey, or something like that. He wasn't there that night, okay? So after all the disciples, except Thomas, saw Jesus, a couple days passed, and then they saw Thomas, and they said, Thomas, Thomas, guess what? Jesus is alive. What do you think, Je- what do you think Thomas said? No, he didn't. He didn't believe him. You know what he said? Thomas says, you know what? Until, until I can put my finger in the holes where they crucified him, until I can touch his side where I saw the soldier poke him, I'm not going to believe it. And that's where we get the, the phrase, don't be a doubting Thomas. Because a couple days later, all got together again. And this time, Thomas was there too. And Jesus appeared. And Jesus went up to Thomas, and Jesus said, Thomas, put your finger in the hole where they crucified me. Touch, touch me where you need to so that you know I'm alive. And then the important thing is, is Jesus said, you believe because you see me. Blessed are those that believe me without even seeing me. Now, who are people that believe in Jesus without even seeing him? Who would that be? Have you guys seen Jesus? But do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, so that's you. And the Bible says, you are blessed. All right, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and we're going to say a quick prayer, okay? Dear God, thank you for Jesus. And thank you for everything that the Bible tells us and how we know that the Bible is God's word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Here we go. We're we're done.
Yeah, thank you for clearing up uh, the purses with the dolls in them, and that's not your normal. Because we're not that kind of Presbyterian around here, folks. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, your goodness is so overwhelming when we stop and contemplate it. That you have reached down into the world and stooped to care for us and to clothe us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and to adopt us and to make us heirs with Jesus of all things. Oh, Father, in our current state, we can't even begin to comprehend that. We are so wrapped up with the fleeting and passing things in this world. <coughs> and rather than simply chastise us for that, you become interested in us and what we have to say to you about the things in this world. You hear our prayers and you take action based on our prayers and your wisdom. So we, we come to you, Father, confident this morning that you are a God who hears and you are a God who acts. And we can expect that if we, if we pray to you that we will hear answers to those prayers. We will see reality change. And so we're going to come to you boldly. We're going to come to you together with one heart. We're going to lift up the things that concern us. Father, we pray for families. Families that have discord of one kind or another in them. We pray, Father, for um, fathers who are worried about their daughters and mothers who are worried about their sons and mothers who are worried about their daughters and fathers who are worried about their sons. We pray for husbands and wives who are not dwelling at peace with one another whose hearts are not at rest in each other, where trust has been shattered, or anger has been allowed to creep in, where wrath and rage poison a home. We pray for peace in families. We pray for healing in families. We pray for those who are lonely and are raising a family on their own because they've lost their life partner in one way or another. We pray for those who are far from their children and their grandchildren, either far in terms of geography and distance or far because a relationship has been strained. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would come and that you would do what you have promised in the prophets to turn the hearts of the, of the parents to the children and the children to the parents and that you would reignite the love of husband and wife. We pray, Father, for godly families. We pray that because you are a covenant God, you are, are the God who not only wants to be our God, but the God of our children after us. We pray for families that are in a mixed spiritual condition where one, is, uh, one parent perhaps is a believer and the other is not, or where the parents are believers but the children are walking wayward. We pray, Father, for you to save those who are not saved and sanctify those who are and teach them to be quiet and to pray much when things are hard. We pray for our church, O oh Lord. We thank you that things are beginning to get better, um, that the pandemic is on its way out. And we just ask, O oh Lord, that... Uh, the vaccinations for those who choose them would continue apace and, and that you would keep any spread from happening that would derail things and that we would be able to be back to normal more or less by the summer. To just enjoy each other's company, to sit in the same room and have a cup of coffee or a meal together is a, is a long-delayed sweet thing. We pray, Lord, that you would bring these things to an end you would bind us back together after this odd separation that we've endured for more than a year. We pray, Lord Jesus, for our leaders and those in authority. We ask uh, that you would make 
them to have wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that um, you would restrain them when they want to do things that are not good. We pray, Lord, uh, not because particularly we like them or agree with them, but when they make decisions, it affects us. And we would dwell at peace and live quietly and do our work with our hands as you've commanded us to do in the scriptures. We pray, Father, for the churches, and we ask that you would raise up Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in this land, and that those who have departed from that heritage would repent, and that you would give pastors wisdom and courage, that you would give people unity of heart, that they would sit still and listen to the word of God, that they would find themselves challenged, instructed, corrected, exhorted. Father, keep the pastors humble, but also let them be bold. Lord, there are many other things we could lift up. There are those who are ill or who are recovering from surgery. We do think of, of Greg Flug, and we ask, oh Lord, that you would continue to knit his body back together, and that it would stay knit together, and that he would be restored to us soon. We pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are mourning deep losses, loved ones who are gone, and life doesn't feel the same, and it doesn't feel good, and it doesn't feel like it could ever be good again. And I just pray, Lord, that in the process of these people meeting together and, and sharing their stories, that healing would happen, and that life would become good in a new way. It'll never be good in the old way again, but it can be good again. And I pray that you would make it so. Father, there are many other things that we could lift up, but our time is short, our attention span is fleeting, my memory is certainly faulty. So we're content to offer up to you the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, why don't we stand and sing the doxology as the deacons are bringing the offering down. Praise God. Thank you for the bounty which you have given to us. Even the poorest among us has so much more than most people have had through history and that most people have throughout the world today. And it's, it's easy to compare ourselves with others around us rather than to compare ourselves with the standard of the scripture. So we thank you for the lavishness that you have granted us as a nation and as a people. And we offer back to you these first fruits of the harvest that you have provided. We ask that you would bless them and multiply them. And we ask that you would bless the giver as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be seated. Let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 10. We're actually going to back up a little bit uh, into verse 4. We're going to pick up the last two words in verse 4 and then read into 5. Ephesians chapter 1. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Our Lord and Savior, we ask this morning that you would do what only you can do, which is to make your word live in the act of preaching. We believe and confess and trust and rest on the promise of the word that when the people of God are gathered in the house of God on the Lord's day and the man whom God has appointed takes up the word of God, that it becomes something more. It's alive. And in that act of preaching, you enter in and you do things in various hearts in the strangest ways. You correct and you rebuke and you exhort and you encourage and you train in righteousness and you instruct. And all these things happen at the same time to different people with different needs in different ways. So make your book live for us, O oh Lord. It is to you and to you alone that we look. Amen. Well, sometimes I have days where I just feel off, and this is one of those days. I don't know why. So if you pray for me, that'd be awesome. I sure appreciate it. Uh, all throughout junior high and high school, I was made to study English grammar in a way that children today mostly don't seem to have to do. And we diagrammed sentences, and we did all those things. And some of it I, I got simply because the same points were beaten into my head over and over and over again for years. Some of it I picked up uh, because of Schoolhouse Rock cartoons on Saturday mornings. I learned about conjunctions from Conjunction Junction. And if you ever get that earworm started in your head again, it will not go away for weeks. I learned about my adverbs from Lolly Lolly Lolly. Get your adverbs here. But I really didn't understand grammar. I didn't understand the importance of grammar until I began to learn foreign languages. Latin, Spanish, French, Greek, Hebrew. All of a sudden, when I had to learn a foreign language, I discovered in the study of those languages the reason and the purpose for the study of grammar. My mic's a little hot. Could you that down. Thank you. You have to understand grammatical constructs to understand what's being said and to figure out how to say what you want to say. And one of the things that's important to understand when you're studying grammar, especially in another language, is verbs. You can make a sentence without nouns in most foreign languages. But you can't make a sentence without verbs. Verbs express action, or they express being. And verbs have a property known as moods. So it's not just your children that have moods. Verbs have moods. Two of the most important moods are the indicative mood and the imperative mood. Now you say, Brian, this is fascinating. What does this mean? Why is this important? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's take the verb go in English. Go in the indicative mood describes reality as it is. She is going to the store. That's what's happening. She's going. That's a description of reality. But the imperative mood describes somebody issuing a command. So go in the imperative mood would be you, go, now. Like what you'd say to your dog or your child. And it describes someone in authority telling someone else what to do. So the indicative describes what is. The imperative describes an order, a command. Now, why did I just tell you all of that? Well, because all of the verbs in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, except, in, except one verb in two verses, are in the indicative mood. 
They are describing the reality of what God has done for his people in Christ Jesus. They describe our riches in Christ. They don't tell us to do anything. The only verb in this whole first three chapters in Ephesians that's in the imperative mood is found in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And and that verb, that command is remember. Remember. Specifically, remember what Christ has done. Keep it in mind. Beyond that, Paul doesn't tell his readers to do anything whatsoever until chapter 4. Now, that's not just the grammar of the book of Ephesians. That's the grammar of the gospel. The gospel always starts with the indicatives. Who you are. Dead. Lost. Estranged. Without hope. Without God in the world. Sinful. Hellbound. The gospel then moves to the indicatives of who Christ is and what he has done for sinful men and women to bring those who are far off near to God and to redeem them. And the first chapters of Ephesians provide the best place in all the Bible. much about ceasing from something or letting go of something as they are about doing something, aren't they? They seem to my heart like a hot shower and a comfortable bed seems to an exhausted and a weary man. And only after these gentle things are deeply absorbed into our person and into our experience do we then hear God telling us to do things. To really roll up our sleeves and get to work. You see, the gospel indicatives must come before the gospel imperatives, or we end up messing the whole thing up. We become legalists, trying somehow to earn with our performances and our deeds the blessings and the benefits of Christ. Or we hold, what's even worse, an orthodox theology in our head, but it's tinged with a legal framework of doctrine and of thought in our hearts. And we begin to act as though, yes, we were saved by grace, but we stay saved by our works. As though Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a treadmill. And that's a lot of people's experience of the Christian faith. No, no, Jesus does not give us a treadmill. Jesus invites us to yoke ourselves to him and to learn how to live as he lived by walking with him. And he promises that when it's time to do the things that he wants us to do, we will find his yoke to be easy and his burden to be light and our souls will be at rest because he's carrying most of the load and we bear very little of the burden. We bear just a little bit but not very much. You see, religion and religiosity wears you out. A legal framework of doctrine is a crushing burden. Life with Jesus in the easy yoke with the light burden is a life of soul rest, even in the midst of bodily activity. It's a life without anxiety. It's a life without fear because it's a life lived with God in the riches of his grace. 
And that's our our phrase that we're going to sort of gather our our thoughts around for these next few weeks. The riches of his grace. It comes, I think, in in verse 9 of Ephesians 1. The riches of his grace. What do those riches actually consist of? What What do they mean? What does it mean that we have these riches of grace? Now, before we start working our way through that, so that you can begin to savor these riches... I want you to notice something that's in verse 8. In verse 8, we're told that he has lavished. He has lavished his grace upon us. Lavished. The word in Greek means to be over and above, to be more than enough. You see, God is not a stingy God. He's not stingy towards his children. He is lavish. And he delights to bless you. And he will give you everything he can possibly give you so long as you can handle it without being damaged or destroyed by it. He's kind. And you can rely upon his kindness. Both now and in the future. You know, every once in a while, uh, like New York City will have a blizzard. And they'll get, you know, 14, 15, 18 inches of snow. And, and I know a lot about moving snow, where I came from. And, and you've got to take it from one place and put it somewhere else. But when you look at, at New York City, there's a lot of places where there's no place else to put it, right? And you're just stuck there. And I guess they haul it out in, in uh, roll-off dumpsters or something. But the, there's no place to go. If, if it snows like that in New York City, you're just buried and there's no place to go. God's grace is kind of like that to his children. It just buries you, and there's no place to go. You can't escape it. It's just everywhere in superabundant amounts. I think it's probably a universal truth that if you're truly saved and you lack some good thing which you long for, something whose absence is keenly felt, that the only reason why God has withheld it is that you've made an idol out of it. And giving it to you in your present state of mind and heart would be destructive. So if you find yourself in that kind of situation, probably the best way through it is to work on loving God most of all and laying aside your demands and your complaints and your keen focus on whatever it is that you're lacking. Get your soul happy in the Lord, and I assure you that the moment he can give you some good thing, he will. Because he is a God who is lavish in his gracious giving and who delights to give gifts to his children. Now, with that in mind, let's go back up to verse 5 and even sneak back a little bit from there to verse 4. You remember that I told you uh, a number of weeks ago that verses 3 through 14 are one long 202-word sentence in the original Greek. And you probably know, but if you don't, I'll tell you, that the chapter and verse numbering system that we have in our English Bibles today did not arise until the 1500s. So there's some question about that little prepositional phrase, in love. Is it that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love? In which case the in love describes how we will one day love God perfectly. And that's what the the King James and the New King James translate it. Or is it as the ESV and most other modern versions have it, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Now, I think it's probably the later. In love, he predestines us. I think that because, as I said earlier, this passage is more concerned about Christ's work for us, and it spends very little time even mentioning what that work will cause us to do. And it's, we will be holy and blameless when God is done, and no doubt we will love God as we should when we're finally and completely holy and blameless. But the focus of the passage is on the saving activity of the triune God on behalf of his people. In love, he predestined us. And why did God do what he did? Well, he did it in love, for his great love for his people. So in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, we have a concept of adoption in our culture, but the biblical concept of adoption, and particularly the New Testament concept of it, is quite different. The Jewish people actually didn't really practice adoption at all, so it's almost entirely absent from the Old Testament. 
But the New Testament concept of adoption is based on Roman culture and Roman practices. So when you ask yourself, what's adoption for? Today, in America, as modern people, the answer to that question is, well, we have a child who needs a loving home. And so you adopt to bring a child into a loving home. But that's not what the Romans thought adoption was for. That's not what they used it for in their culture. In Roman culture, the purpose of adoption was to secure a male heir for your property and your fortune. The wealthy noble class in Rome had money, but they also had hereditary lands, and they had hereditary titles, as well as hereditary positions of power. So for instance, in the Roman Senate, they had a Senate that was a lifetime position based on your birth. And when you died, you passed that position as senator onto your heir. Or, and many other offices like that too, lower offices like proconsul and certain judges and things like that. Now, those positions could only be filled by a male heir. And control of the estates and the wealth could only be given legally to the male heir. If the, the head of the family, the pater familias, died without a male heir, all of that was at risk. And of course, many children didn't survive into adulthood in those days. So it was very common amongst the upper classes to adopt a male heir, and when doing so, the person who was adopted had to be a Roman citizen. He also had to leave behind anything he might have owned in his old life, any money, any land, even his children. And that's another place where adoption was different in Rome than it is today. Um, it was very common to adopt somebody who was 20 or 30 years old, an adult man, so he would have children. And, and those children were then left with his old family, and they kept his old name, and he took a new name. So adoption wasn't really something for children necessarily. And there were even cases where the person being adopted was older than the person doing the adopting. They're rare, but they happen. Now, since women in the Roman uh, world couldn't own property and couldn't exercise any kind of authority, in those days, women were almost never adopted. That's why Paul mentions that adoption as sons. To be adopted as a daughter wouldn't mean anything to them because it wouldn't change your life very much. To be adopted as a son meant that you were going to be given, you now had a right to wealth and power and title and lands. Most of the emperors, from Caesar Augustus all the way up to Marcus Aurelius in the third century, were adopted by the previous emperor. There were very few that were the natural-born children of the emperor. So, so ladies, you too, in Paul's understanding, are adopted as sons. In Paul's way of looking at things, you are to be given positions of wealth and dignity and authority and power. I didn't create the Roman world. Sorry, feminists. I, it's not my fault. But that's, that's what Paul's trying to convey here, though. In that culture, in that day, you get these benefits. You get this wealth. You get this authority. Now, now here's the strange thing. We, we might know a little bit about the Roman world, but there were slaves and then there were free people in the Roman Empire, and then there were citizens, and there were non-citizens. And then there were other classes of people that we don't have today. There were nobles, and there were commanders. And depending on where you were in these different hierarchies, you had different rights. You had, you had access to different levels of power and privileges. It's not like America, where everyone supposedly has the same rights. A slave didn't have any rights. He didn't even have the right to life. A non-citizen didn't have a right, for instance, to trial before being punished. So he could just be beaten for being accused and of a crime, and, and then nobody would do anything about it. They, you haven't, your rights haven't been violated because you don't have any rights. But a citizen had the right to a fair trial. 
before being punished or beaten. And if he didn't like the outcome of his trial, he had the right to appeal to Caesar and to be tried by Caesar himself. You you could be born a citizen or you could be made a citizen, but most people born in the Roman Empire and even in Rome itself were not citizens. Like 90% of the people under the Roman rule were not citizens of the Roman Empire. It's not like today where in the U.S. just being born in this country grants citizenship automatically. And then there were even different levels of citizenship, granting different levels of rights. So it was all very complicated, but the higher you got, the better things were. The freer you were. The more control over your destiny and your property you were. Now, if you served in a certain branch of the army for 20 plus years, assuming you lived, they would give you a retirement and you could become a citizen. But then there was this weird quirk in the Roman law where adoption was concerned. Someone who was a non-citizen but a free person could never be adopted. But a slave that was freed by a nobleman could be granted citizenship if a price was paid to grant him that citizenship. And then the ex-slave became known as a freedman. And a freedman could then be adopted. So sometimes it was better to be a slave and, and then to be freed and adopted than it was to be a foreigner who was free. And that price that was paid for the slave so that he could be freed was called redemption. And we find that word in verse 7. Now, one last puzzle piece here. And then I'm going to put this all together in a way that I think will actually touch your heart. Since adoption was primarily about arranging for a male heir to inherit lands and title and positions of power and wealth, can you not see that it wouldn't happen if the father had a male heir already? If you have a strong, wise, perfect, only begotten son, why would you adopt any other sons? You wouldn't. It wouldn't make sense to, not to a Roman noble. In their system, only one son could ascend to the family's position of glory and receive that power in that position. Just like only one son of Prince Charles and Lady Diana can become the King of England. So there was one position. And if you were adopting somebody, it was because you didn't have anybody to fill that one position. And if you had somebody to fill that one position, you didn't adopt anybody. But our emperor, he's not a Roman despot. Our emperor wants to bring many sons from slavery to glory. Not only that, the price of their redemption and their adoption was the crushing of the body and the shedding of the blood of the legal heir, the father's only begotten son, the legitimate inheritor of all that the father owns and all of the father's glory. And those who were redeemed by his crushing are not merely slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to Satan, slaves to death. They're also servants of a kingdom which is at war with the kingdom which our Father has prepared in the Son. They are enemy combatants. So can you see how revolutionary it is for Paul to write these things? Can you see how baffling this would have seemed to the Romans that Paul was writing to when he said what he said in Romans 5 verses 8 and 10? But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God in the death of his son, much more now are we to be rec- that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Our emperor bought us from the slave market as aliens, strangers, 
enemy fighters. Our emperor crushed his son to pay the redemption price to set us free from slavery. Then he adopted us and he made us fellow heirs with the son he crushed to redeem us. So that everything that Christ inherits, we also inherit. Simply because he loved us before there was a world. Can you, can you even wrap your heads around that? He gave us Christ to redeem us from slavery and adopt us so that we could be on an equal footing with Christ in terms of rule and wealth and glory and power. You see why salvation is the forgiveness of sins so that I can go to heaven when I die is just such a wimpy, it's not untrue, but it's just such a partial wimpy truth. When God wants to do so much more and will do so much more for his beloved. You know, you and I, we live our lives so often like spiritual paupers. We look at the world around us and the world fights for the same table scraps. They fight each other. All the, all the conflict in our culture right now, the oppression Olympics and who has the biggest grievance, that's all fighting over table scraps of, of power. And Christians are trying to figure out how to elbow their way in and fight for some of that power too. And they're just table scraps. The worldlings fight over these things. All we have to do is lift our eyes and behold the eternal feast that is lavishly spread for us and the finest robes that he's given to dress us for the party and the great power and the great authority that we will wield in the kingdom because he's adopted us. And when we truly see all this and, and see that it's going to be ours forever and that that is certain if we are in Christ, it will not be taken away, it really causes you to ask, why am I so concerned to be thought sexy? Or why am I so concerned to be popular? Or what is it to be envied? Why am I so concerned that I'm envied for my wealth or my sports ability? or my academic achievements. Why do I care what the foolish worldlings think? All of that is gonna fade away or it's gonna be taken away when I'm no longer sexy. I'm there now. When I'm no longer powerful, I'm no longer wealthy, I'm no longer able to dunk a basketball, or Alzheimer's and dementia have taken my fine mind from me. Why do I care about those things? They can't last, and when they do last, they're as much sources of pain as they are pleasure. That was very interesting this week. I, I, I don't know why I know this, but one of the Kardashian women had an unauthorized photo of herself that went out and everybody went, ew, she looks fat. And so she actually took another photo of herself because then they were like, well, she's been, she's been photoshopping all her old photos to make her not look fat and she looks fat now. And so she actually did a little movie of herself so that we could all see that she's not fat because she has these horrible body issues. And it's like, your whole function in the world just seems to be parading around in a bikini and you're worried about body issues. And I'm just like, and, and someday, you know, you're going to have a baby or two or three, maybe. And if not, you're going to hit menopause and it's, you're not going to want to be in a bikini anymore. And it's all gone and you lived for it. And while you lived for it, you weren't happy, you were miserable. That's the way the world does things. They make you miserable while you're pursuing the things that they tell you will not make you miserable. And God comes along and says, child, stop grubbing around in the dirt. Look up at what Christ has won for you that's yours forever, that you can't lose. 
You're going you're to rule, some of you are going to rule ten cities in the kingdom. Who knows? Some of you might be like terraforming Mars or something. We don't know what he's prepared for us. But it's about glory. It's about being entertained. It's about being noticed and approved of by the only person that counts. And it's about being busy with amazing work that isn't a burden, it's a joy. The only things that matter are eternal things. The only opinion that matters is God's opinion. The only glory that you can't lose is the glory that's yours in the kingdom, not this one. Now, C.S. Lewis had a wonderful essay. Called, it was actually it was a sermon, I believe, that he gave in a chapel at Oxford. And uh, it's called The Weight of Glory. And he says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that are promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily. Father, take these things and write them on our hearts if they are worthy of being written there. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and continue worshiping this morning. Mm -hmm.